0: You're listening to Conversations with Shonda, a podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems, hosted by Shonda Smith-Baker.
1: This episode of Conversation with Shonda was produced with support from the Black Collective Foundation. It features a live conversation from stage with Dr. Makeba McQuarrie and Quincy Miller from the New Commonwealth Fund. The Nonprofit Board Lab was put on by the National Association of Corporate Directors, Minnesota Chapter, to engage nonprofit board leaders in the trends facing the social sector, ways that board leadership can partner with executives of nonprofits to advance equity and impact. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Please like or follow the podcast and thank you for listening. Good morning everyone. I think that it's really helpful for us to get grounded. I know that I have sat on, I tell people I'm a little bit of a governance nerd and really appreciate the role that governance can be. If we look at it as one of the best levers, I believe, for change, if it's used effectively, if it is used to ask strategic questions that drive the organization forward, It has been quite a pleasure to join the board of NACD, Minnesota Chapter. It has been a delight to me to be able to be part of a dialogue on the state of the state, what we might be wrestling with and hear from those and each other in the room that um, have experiences that might provide some insight to our own leadership. I am also very uh, delighted to have uh, these two on stage. When I heard about their work, I was extremely inspired and selfishly wanted them here in town with us um, because of the work that we're doing at the Black Collective Foundation. Before we jump into the questions that I've been um, dying to ask, I am just going to ask for uh, Quincy Miller and Dr. Makiba Macquarie to introduce themselves. I'm going to start with you, Quincy.
2: Okay. Excellent. Good morning, everyone. We said, my name's Quincy Miller. Uh, my day job in Boston is I'm the president of the largest community bank uh, in Boston and Massachusetts. We're about $27 billion. The name of the company is called Eastern Bank and we're 205 years old. So that's what I do in my day job. I'm also uh, a board member of NACD New England, which is and very much involved uh, in the community. I serve on eight different nonprofit boards. In addition to—it's too many—in uh, addition to my day job, the one that's most near and dear to my heart is being a founding member of NCF. You could tell you, you had all corporate people and nobody in marketing because our name is way too long, so we just call it NCF for short now. Um, so that's really how I spend my time.
3: My pleasure to be here. It's been like a whirlwind of the past— less than 24 hours, but it's been incredible. So thank you first and foremost for having us here. My name's Makiba McCrary and I am the president of the New Commonwealth Fund, which is the other shortened version of um, the full length name. Uh, But I think it is important that it is a racial equity and social justice fund and that is core to our mission and our work every day. We are three years old. I joined about 18 months in, so sort of halfway through and I think we'll Take a moment at some point to tell you what happened before and after, and I too uh, sit on several boards in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. My background is in education policy, direct service, and also um, organizational leadership and development work.
1: Awesome, thank you to you both. I sit on six boards and I thought I was doing the most <laughs> <laughs> anyway so what what I would love to talk about is the origin story and You want to take that one as a founding?
2: So this is uh, a surreal moment when Shannon asked for us to come here, because you lived this being here in Minneapolis, but we were founded uh, a week after George Floyd was murdered. Uh, A couple black and brown executives in Boston, we just literally started with a text and said, let's just get together and just talk. Because at that time—I mean, you know, we're 1,500 miles away, but at that time— Uh, it was emotionally draining uh, being a person of color, particularly being in corporations, when all the corporations turned to the most senior person of color and said, what do we do right now? Uh, And so that's really what we got together. And it literally was a text string. And that Sunday we're on a Zoom, uh, obviously we're in the middle of the pandemic, uh, and that turned into inviting a couple other people. So we ended up with like 19 people a week later so there's people ask all the time, like, why were there 19 founders, and the answer just was at 19 we had to cut it off because you couldn't get anything done. Um, and so what our discussions were really about what we could do in our own corporations, and then it quickly morphed into how do we use our blessings in terms of power and influence in corporate America and within our companies to try to catalyze this moment and make sure it turned into a movement. And We ultimately, to keep the story short, decided that we wanted to start our own fund focused on how do we break down this goal of systemic racism across the Commonwealth. To be a fund that's driven by people and governed by people who have a shared lived experience of the work that we're trying to do. Uh, and that 's what we set out to do, and this idea of that you, we talked or you heard earlier about the power dynamic this had never been done in Boston, and quite frankly in very few places across the country. You know We went to the old guard, if you will, who had controlled philanthropy in Boston uh, to get their ideas and their thoughts. Um, it was a lukewarm reception, uh, and in some ways. After you left the room, uh, a bit of chuckles that, you know, how were these black and brown people really going to be able to pull this off? Uh, so I still have some scars to this day of people who I will never uh, let down for that. But that's a whole other story for a different time. Uh, and we decided to start—so we decided to start this fund. We wanted to—we had a couple key factors that we wanted to do. One. And I'm not not sure if it's similar here in Minnesota, but in Massachusetts, Boston is the epicenter of philanthropy. And if you're outside of Boston, getting a dollar from a corporation or foundation is very hard. So our first focus was we were going to be statewide because there's a lot of communities of color who are really underserved outside of Boston. So that was one of our uh, key tenets. Um, The second key tenant is we wanted to ask corporate- we started with corporations because we were all corporate at the time. We wanted them to make multi-year gifts, which most people know corporations hate. Uh, but the message was, we can't end racism within a year. You can't end it in 10 years. We want you to be engaged with us year after year. So almost all of our grants were four or five-year grants when they initially started. Uh, and we would say, if you want to give us 500000 great. Give it to us 100000 a year over the next five years, so you remain connected to the work that we're doing. So that was one of the other key themes. And then the final one was we had through our research really found that the philanthropic redlining that took place, that nonprofits who were closest to the work and often led by black and brown leaders were cut out from the philanthropic circles. And a lot of that is systems-based because corporations were always looking for scale and impact, and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy if You can't create scale and impact, but you can't get funding to ever get there. And the nonprofits literally didn't have the ability um, to be able to grow and thrive and take their models to a different level. And so we founded that. We ended up in the first, I think, three months or four or five months, we had raised $20 million worth of commitments. Ironically, the mayor started his own fund, which they ultimately rolled into our fund once we proved our, our success. Um, But—and then we essentially ran it. Uh, We formed an executive committee, and we ran it as executives for the first year and a half (laughs) with some consulting work, literally working full-time on this. Uh, And then that's when we brought in Makiba to really take us to the next level.
1: Right? I have like 12,000 questions just on that, (laughs) but what I will ask you is— do you think you would have been able to raise that money in that timeline had George Floyd not occurred?
2: Never. Why? It's it, just—I mean, we were talking about this yesterday a little bit, this, this, this question of why could there have been literally thousands of murders in this country through hundreds of years, and George Floyd's murder sparked such—and and I don't know if there's really one answer to that. Uh, but what what we knew was, um, at least for, for my generation, so I didn't live through the Civil Rights generation, uh, I'm 49, so I, but for me this felt like the first time in my life that there was enough energy and opportunity to move the ball forward that so many generations had done before in the past. Uh, and so our goal was just to take advantage of that. And I think the things we worried about then are the things that we have seen since which is people would get fatigued with it, would the momentum continue? Uh, and we are now sitting here, you know, sort of fighting through this aspect of um, the things that we knew would happen, and, but we can't let it go back. Even though it's taken a step back, we can't let it go back to where it was. We have to keep being more overt and pushing this work forward. Uh, And we need corporations, foundations, and individuals, which we now focus around all three uh, to continue on this work with us.
1: So you have 19 executives working through a consultant, and then you decide to hire someone. So I don't know if anybody's ever experienced a board that has been in operations, <laughs> but I just want to know what that transition looked like and how long did it take you to move into a
2: governance position? Um, so, well, it's probably going to be good for Makiba to share her perspective of it because it's gonna I- It's going to be
1: chapter one and then chapter I, two. I right. want I, your version <laughs> and then I want her version.
2: Uh, look, I, we were very-
0: They
2: were ready. We were very focused on governance from the beginning. And the reason we were so focused on governance from the beginning is because we had a lot riding at stake. This was a very public launch. It was, everybody knew about it. It was on the newspaper, and we couldn't fail. We, we couldn't be 19 black and brown people we were going to start a fund, and then six months later it fails. It would have been disastrous. So, I mean, we initially, and by the way, remember it's COVID, so you can't get a 501c3. It like taking a year at that point. So, we initially launched with the community foundation, uh, the Boston Foundation. We went to them because they had credibility as a community foundation. So, we initially launched as a DAF with the understanding that we were going to apply for our own 501c3 and then ultimately become our own fund. So, we were very focused on governance from the beginning. We have Way too many attorneys as part of the nineteen of us, so we were um, you know within we you know brought in Deloitte, we really made sure that we created our bylaws, created our governance, and most of us having ser- had serving on boards or public company boards, even before we had the um, staff structure, we created the governance structure to ensure that we did things right and then you know we ran it the way you know we thought was best, but what we also knew was. We needed it to go to the next level. I think that was the number one reason why—two things. One, we wanted to establish the foundation so we could attract somebody talented to come to this organization, because it was essentially a startup. And that was important for us to do, and that's why we took that year and a half before we did that. Uh, But there were things we just weren't getting to because we weren't doing it full time. And like bringing in other black and brown leaders from across the Commonwealth to support this work uh, was on our list for forever, and we just never got to it. Uh, but we are. what I would also say is, in hindsight, our vision was also narrower than what our actual um, organizational effectiveness is today, which McKeeba will talk about. Um, and that was what was really exciting for us, to hand over our baby, but to someone who was ultra-talented- and to just the last- when we did this search- we we literally had applicants from across the country. I was blown away, uh, and uh, Makiba and I had known each other uh, beforehand uh, as well. Uh, but to, you know, our ability to be able to attract someone like Makiba to lead this organization, and do it from a personal passion, uh, is what I think is really made this special for us.
1: Well, Doc, yeah. <laughs> you come in, you enter the picture now, and so where, where did you go from there?
3: You know, one of the things that Quincy didn't, didn't share, but I really want to lift up for everybody, is, um, and alluded to it a little bit, but in that moment when these 19 individuals stepped forward, I mean, they did so at the peril of their positionality. I mean, they had p- power and position, but you don't—you're not black or brown in Massachusetts in a C-suite position, turning around saying to your white CEO, I'm sorry, we're going to lead this, and yes, you can write a check, but you will not be leading this effort. And so those were not always the easiest of conversations, um, And but they did that. And so that courage actually is what, what I remember reading when they launched in the paper, and I thought, I am so proud of these individuals, of whom I, I knew many. and. Um, my pride was like the first thing that came forward so when this opportunity happened that is really what i i felt i was leading with was like a, a fierce protection of the courage that they stepped forward with. And that's really what has, continues to sort of drive me every day, so yes, having 19 type A founders who are lawyers and bankers and physicians is not easy, but I will say to you, it, is, it has been the most privileged experience I think I will ever have um, as a leader um, in my career, what, whatever um, has happened before or to come, um, because it is theirs. They created it, and to, to be able to take it and and continue to think about how precious this work is, um, and doing it on behalf of them, but then also on behalf of the, you know, 150 organizations that are led by 98% black and brown people across the Commonwealth, we have a responsibility to them as well, and the integrity with which those two things come together just is, you know, it's a welcome responsibility, it's a a weight, but it, it feels like the right thing to get up and do every day.
1: You said something that I want to hone in on, which is you essentially felt protected. And so what question that um, brings up for me is the, the role that you all have as CEO and chair and what that dynamic looks like and what does support look like for you and then what does that look like for you?
3: I would say that, um, believe it or not, every single board member Takes my phone call, my text. If I, if they know that if I take the minute to reach out, it's because I actually really am. I need some support in that moment, um, and vice versa. So, while while we have a board chair, we have a board vice chair, we have board members. I actually, everybody sort of is present um, for me across the board. I would say.
2: And 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 just from a governance perspective, we we never really looked at and we, we had to do a board chair. We, we created the governance, but we're, we're all in. It's just like, okay, who has the time? Who's going to take this turn and then someone else is going to take it next? So, it's not really hierarchical like that, um, like some boards may be. Uh, and I think for us as board members, uh, the hardest thing was, honestly, this sort of coming together around the strategy on where we went, where we would go forward. I mean, we spent a lot of hours and a lot of time thinking strategically beyond just grant making. How could we make an impact and, and move forward? And even, you know, fundamentally, I remember Makiba pushing us. Um, so we started with four pillars initially. So four pillars of focus, which were policing and criminal justice reform, the reason we were founded, um, um, health equity, uh, economic uh, empowerment, and youth, and youth education. Uh, and uh, support, and so those were our four pillars that we focused on, and the grants that we were making were all in those areas and When makiba wanted to add a fifth pillar, you know as a board members, we were like, ooh, a fifth like and and in this um, and this idea of a, you know how do we control our own narrative is what Makekiba brought uh, to us as board members and said, "Listen, this is just as important." As all those other four pillars that you're doing, because we have to control our story, what has been our history and what will be our future, and how do we support individuals uh, through art, uh, through whether that's written or visual, to be able to make sure. But that, for us, that was. Going through that change, we had to trust and sort of release the power. And to your point, 19 type A people, <laughs> that's probably the hardest piece of it, uh, And it's, but it's been the reason we've been the most successful, too.
1: Um, Makiba, can you talk about one of the ways in which you approach the work is through respect-based philanthropy. Can you share a little bit more on what you mean by that?
3: Sure. So, I, I spent about nine years, a decade or so, even more ago. Um, managing philanthropy for um, a, an international corporation, and so I had been in in the field, so I come back to it now. And there's this like term that's being floated around, especially in, in 2020, called trust-based philanthropy. So I go to all of my different colleagues across the country, and I say, like, what what does this mean? Like, I kind of I'm getting a glimmer, but I just want a, a gut check. And everybody had a different definition for me, and and so truly, people were saying like. We kind of we we don't have a shared definition, but essentially what we're saying is we want the barrier to access to be lower. We want the lift to be lighter. And yes, ultimately what we're signaling is we want more Black and Brown leaders to be able to access these dollars. And it was just bizarre to me, and I just I, it did not sit well. And I kept thinking about it, and then I ended up spending time with. At the time, we had about 50 leaders in the portfolio, and um, I kept wondering how we got to a place of trust so quickly. And then I kept thinking, how is it possible that trust equates to still smaller dollars? Because really, if you look at the data sets, even in 20 in 2019, you know, giving to black communities from community foundations nationally went from 75 million to 125 million. That still only represented 2.1 um, percent of all giving philanthropically across the country. So I'm, trust did not co- you know, all of a sudden equate to generosity or even leveling the playing field even a little bit. And so what I started to, to say in, in rooms with, with my peers, at least in Massachusetts, is I think what we're really trying to get to is respect. I actually think that trust requires a relationship, and you, you don't have a relationship. I don't have a relationship with these folks. Um, And so, what if we started with being respectful of the fact that actually, you know, Quincy, he wants to be accountable. He doesn't want a lighter lift. He doesn't want less money. He wants just as much money as the white nonprofit leader sitting next to him, and he's willing to jump through those hoops. He might need the the resources, the access, the support, the capacity to do that, just like every other leader needs that. It doesn't mean that he wants to be let off the hook. That's actually incredibly disrespectful, and that doesn't equate to trust at all. Um, And so that's the way that we've been thinking about our work, um, and that's the way that we've been framing um, the way that we approach our grantmaking process.
1: The other thing that you guys have uh, surfaced a little bit is around courage. So there was courage that it took from the 19 executives to sort of go out and say, this is what we're going to do. Although I also imagine at that point, and with the uprising that happened, they were also fearful of what might come. So they like, I don't want to be called racist, so let me jump in. So I think that there was probably a dynamic that made it um, easier for them to jump in. But then you also talk about the relationship and the trust that you all have to make sort of courageous decisions and move in new ways how much of that is because you understand the story differently, the proximity to the issue? Because I want to just start there and then just talk about it in a broader scope, but how much of it is because we can all sit here and say George Floyd and look at each other and head nod and and we understand the conversation. So how much was a conversation already understood that allowed for the work to move forward?
3: I'll start, and, and I mean, I can't tell you how many times one of our other board members is a great example. His CEO came to me early on and said, "How in the world are you finding all of these organizations? We had to hire a consultant to figure out where they all were. And I didn't have a good answer for him <laughs> because I just I thought, well, we know who they are. And then they tell us who the other folks are. And then we ask. Like, it just doesn't feel that complicated to me. And why did you go and hire a white consulting group to find you black-led organizations? I, um, but it, then I realized that like I was asked that question many, many, many more times. Proximity is everything. It's everything.
2: And, and our hope from that was uh, two of the lead uh, corporate founders or investors in New Commonwealth Fund uh, is Eastern Bank and State Street. We also have two of the largest corporate foundations, and, and we both do this work. like very Both organizations are very committed to doing this work, but that's one of the conversations that we had uh, as we were doing this is, yes, we do great work, but we're still just scratching the surface. I mean, we do 1,800 grants a year, 1,800 different organizations a year in Massachusetts. And and my answer to our our head of the foundation was, you're not even finding the people that are making this impact. Yes, we are touching a lot of them. And what we've been able to do is, because of this proximity and because of this trust in that people say, oh no, here's really who's doing the good work, right? Right. Because we went in the community and said, no, don't just tell us like who are the black and brown led—no. Like, Who is really doing the good work? And the people in the community will tell you go to this one, don't go to this one. This one is really, you know, and what we're able to do is by supporting them, it raises them up. And what we found is this ability to now, our support for them gives them credibility that they are doing more work, which our hope was, and we've been driving to, that that opens the door. For them to get into other foundations and other corporations to continue to to get them onto a level playing field, and that 's been sort of really intentional through that network
1: What has been the board 's role in supporting the innovation of of NCf
2: well I, again, I think that it was it 's really been these two sort of dichotomies: the first was just us and our ideas and trying to change the the, the way of giving from our lens, from corporately, uh, and then what makiba's brought is us as board members. So we were talking about this at our table, right? When you sit on a nonprofit board, there's this full spectrum of working boards to boards that are in many ways perfunctory because there's so many board members, right? And everywhere in between. So for us from a governance perspective. It was hard for us to go from a fully 100% working board where we had meetings three days a week, you know, at least every Sunday, like for and you know 12 to 18 months, to now have a board structure where it's we're going to meet once a month. Uh, and we're going to meet by committee, and we're going to— That sort was of... the
3: first conversation we had, where I was like, I, I'm sorry, we are no longer meeting.
1: <laughs> like, like,
3: once a month, I could see no. people in here. I'm like, quarterly
1: seems like a lot sometimes, anyway.
2: <laughs> but yeah, so that from a board governance perspective, it was the opposite of how most happened. But I I think it. we, we had to give that up and trust in uh, Makiba and the staff she was building it, and the talent that she was bringing in the room. And uh, that was probably one of the most important things that we did through this process. Starting it was first, and then giving up control was the second most important thing we did from a governance perspective.
1: As I giggle. Anyway, um, (laughs) what was I talking about? Okay, so— Can I I
3: just add add and say, just for folks who are, are leading organizations, I actually also think it's really important to say what you need. Like I was really explicit, like I will be successful if you all structure yourselves in, in this way and then like you also have to tell me like what you need in order to feel like you can trust me. And so there was a, there was some negotiation there, but it was very much a, um, a, a conversation. Um, yeah.
1: So I could see all of the things and I can hear all of the ways in which things were working really well. What were some of the things that were challenging or what were some of the lessons uh, learned? And so I'll start with you and then go this way.
3: Um, so we are a grant maker, and so we're at you know, 11 million plus out the door so far. We've raised 40 million to date. We are pushing towards our first 100 million, thank you. Um, but that means that we're also a fundraiser. Um, and I would say that one of the uh, first challenges for, for me is um, you're building an infrastructure while you're fundraising, while you're grant making, while you're supporting governance, while you're you know, um, leaving a, a donor-advised fund and, and standing up your own 501c3. And you are in rooms with, frankly, predominantly white rooms, trying to make the case for um, an investment in an issue area that people are really comfortable starting to look away from. And um, so the further you get away from 2019, 2020, 21, 22, the easier it is for folks to say, well, shouldn't we really be focusing back on education? Or shouldn't we really be thinking about the environment? because it's really uncomfortable to talk about racism, um, still, and then I have to respond to like, okay, fine, if I buy that racism is still an issue, then tell me how you think you're actually going to dismantle it. Like what's, what are your KPIs? How are you—I'm oh, really serious, like wh- wh- what's your evaluation methodology? And. Um, that's been a pain point for me. That was probably one of my first big pain points, and I will say that you know I brought it to the board um, and sort of had this reaction, which was, "Listen, I can build a rubric. I have degrees, you know. I can I can f- make it look good, um, but what I'd like to do is actually live the values that we even saw on that slide earlier, and and say." No, like we're not going to reperpetuate the um, colonialistic structure of traditional philanthropy that says we're going to tell you what success looks like, and the board 100% was down to support that. And so, what we did was we actually stopped and we brought in leaders of color and we gave that we paid them for six months to do two things: one, tell us what systemic racism looked like in their day job, and then two. And they came, they came to shared definitions of that, 19 of them, 20 of them, shared definitions of systemic racism at the personal level, the community level, the institutional level, the policy level. And then we said, now we need you to define what your world looks like when those things are removed, when it's solved for, because that's what we want to invest in. And they came up with three things, empowered communities, shared narratives, and transparency and accountability. And that's what we committed to using. And then moments when I, I, I get slippery, and I'm like, okay, let's just figure out how we get back to a really concrete KPI, Quincy will pull my coattail. And he'll be like, no, 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 <laughs> we aren't go- we're not going to do that. And so I think that is a dynamic that is not resolved ever, um, because it's tough to sit in a room and say, we really need a $5 million you know, commitment from you. And you can see the skepticism on their face. Um, and then to say and i'm not going to I'm not going to tell you that we're looking at success through the same measures that you think are important. do you feel like the board understands
1: the the challenges, or how do you think the board responds to the challenges because obviously you feel comfortable sharing that I, I don't know if that's always the case, where we sort of edit out the challenges and make it look better, but it sounds like there's a pretty open conversation where you can state a challenge and maybe the response is keep moving, you're headed in the right direction, right? Not an overreaction to the challenge and, and a reversal. Would that be accurate? Yeah, I mean,
3: we're probably really unique. I feel like kind of a family dynamic. Okay. Like, you know, we don't always get along, but, <laughs> but we, you know, we still sit down at the dinner table the next day, and I think we really love each other very much. Um, we all show up for the same reasons.
2: There's been these moments as it's gone along, of you know, when we first started, and as I mentioned, the mayor had started an, another fund, and so I had this question from corporations, well, why do you need two funds focused on this? And I literally said to an executive that I was, I was close to, I go, that question was systemically racist. What do you mean, why do we need two funds to support you know, black and brown people? Like no one asked, why do you need X number of funds for any other philanthropic mission? And this idea that we get the pushback around is, well, how will your hundred million end systemic racism in the Commonwealth? And you know, I just chuckle with that. And again, that's that question of itself is so. You're you're in a way being passive aggressive to say, I'm not sure I really wanna support, because I'm not sure you're gonna be able to solve racism with hundred million dollars. And our answer is, we can't solve racism with hundred million dollars. But again, if you think about corporations, so some of the work and the things that they support, you know, they don't ask if they're supporting something in the medical field, or they don't, they don't say, well, when is that gonna be solved? Right, I'm not gonna support it because I can't see the end state of it. But when you get into things that are uncomfortable for people to talk about uh, and are outside of their typical sphere of um, lived experience, th- they always want to put these barriers around their support for it. And it's the same thing that we see through our um, nonprofit leaders. The difference is we have to be the voice that says, uh uh, we don't play that. Like that's, so, that's the, so if, if Makiba gets anything, it's, yeah, we hear you. We're going to walk in a room and tell them, That shit ain't happening, uh, and with our fund, and you need to step up and be able to move forward. But we have this different dynamic that I think we have a responsibility for the organizations that we're supporting that are also fundraising to be the ones that push back um, and help to really try to change philanthropy in the Commonwealth, and you know. Hopefully, broader.
3: And I can do that for the organizational leaders, and I do it every single day. And and so then the board does that for me. And I think that's the other part of the relationship is I ask for help. Some, you know, because you you need it sometimes.
1: Mm-hmm. So, uh, Quincy, can you juxtapose? the way in which this board operates versus your other seven boards? <laughs> I mean, you know, because there's, there's got to be differences. I can envision what they might be, but can can you just layer in, not in a way that just perhaps even how you have to show up, I imagine is different?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I, again, I think—well, as you can imagine, when you show, I show up at a board, I show up as a black man, right? So I, I have this personal sort of commitment. Uh, to make sure that i 'm going to be that voice in the room if there 's no voice, and if there is a voice i 'm going to be another voice in the room so personally i that 's just how I need to show up uh, and I do know that that is not always going to be the popular thing and it's uh, but I have gotten to a place in my career where i don 't really care uh, and so uh, and, and and I probably wouldn 't i would i've not probably I have not necessarily shown up to this um, being this overt in boards that I've been on throughout my life, but I'm at the point where I feel like I can do that. So for me that's similar. I think what's different about this board than my others is it's really because of the origin and the family dynamic of it, Uh, and and I'm not really on any other boards where I was there at the beginning and it was started, and and most of them are very long-standing organizations. Uh, But I do think it's this family dynamic aspect uh, that we have, um, that we've created. And not even just with the original 19, because now we've expanded it beyond. There's board members who weren't here in the original 19. But you all are coming together with this commitment of trying to make a change that so many people before us have been fighting for, for generations. We we just feel this shared collective responsibility uh, to be able to be successful, and I'm not saying my other boards don't have that. But and you know there's passion and there's commitment to those boards, but in, in many ways this is just really unique, and so it's hard to put it into words. But it it really is this family aspect uh, versus just a commitment and responsibility aspect that I get in other boards.
1: Yeah. So my question um, sort of goes off of this, and then maybe I'll circle back and see if you have anything else to offer. So the question is, um, many of us have to show up in the work in in a particular way. And so who have you had to be in your career to like show up in the work, right? There's a navigation around things, and I think it's important because these navigational issues show up in leadership at the board level, at the staff level, and community levels. Who have you had to be to, to show up?
3: I mean, I think we were talking about this a little bit at dinner, but for me, like the most present um, recollection of having to show up as if that's a thing, right? Like not just being able to walk in and like do your job is, uh, my role previous to this, which was at the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston, where I was the first person of color in 150 years to be on the leadership team, in the middle of multiple racial incidents not related to Mr. Floyd's murder, just in general in Boston, um, that became national stories. Um, then, then we had a pandemic. Then we had, you know, then we had all these things happen, and and then and and being both personally, um, uh, you know, emotionally embroiled in this, um, these moments and trying to sort through being the mother of a young black man and the daughter of uh, an elder black man and, you know, the sister of a black man. And then having my white, you know, male um, director ask me to show up as his black woman every day to respond as an expert um, to all of the issues that he did not understand or needed somebody to sort of be his shield for. Um, And so coming from that moment, which is a unique moment—you know, that's not my entire experience as a professional—but to now, like, showing up every day—and I actually happen to have a fairly um, diverse staff of one white person. and what I hear from folks is what I feel also, which is it's amazing to walk in the door and actually not, be, not walk in being a person of color. Like, it's the first time in my life I've walked in, and I am, I am the, the president, but I, I'm also, like, the leader of an organization, and then I make—maybe down the line I end up being a black woman. Um, it is not the first thing that I walk through the door having to put on my armor with, um, and that's a very different experience. And I think it makes me, it, it's allowing me to like show up as a much more, more whole, full um, human being.
1: Yeah, I think that's just an important thing to, to note as our boards are diversifying, our staffs are diversifying, that I think that as we tell our experiences and our leadership more, that one, it gives people permission to attached to their own experiences differently, but also to be aware of what does it mean to create inclusive space? Because if you're not fully showing up, it means the organization isn't fully reaching its capacity um, because people are editing down. And so I think that that is an opportunity for governance to evolve, to say, what does it look like for us to support the leadership that is diverse in the organization based on our goals, based on our intentionality. And so, I don't know if you want to add anything else in terms of who you've had to show up as. And I think you sort of alluded to it's probably both, you know, age and experience and tenure and position and, and influence that allow you to, to lead in a fuller voice, I imagine.
2: Yeah, I, I, I think one example is um, I just termed off of a board uh, that does great work around first-generation students of color in Boston, and, and, and around in Boston. It's been around 25 years, uh, and when I first joined the board, um, it really struck me—and and, and there's you know 15 16 board members i think three of us were people of color everybody was passionate about supporting students of color and raising up and doing this work and they had done fantastic work and at one point i took over as chair of governance and i said okay you've all been doing this for a long time but we need to change as a board because the 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 population we're serving our board doesn't look like, and so I need you all to be willing to step aside and bring on a greater level of diversity so that we have a better perspective. And not just in terms of race, but also in terms of age. And so you heard the comment earlier, I had this whole pushback around, but we're a fundraising board, we need people who can raise money. And I said yes, but we need some of the alumni from our program on the board who've already lived that experience because they will give us value that's beyond fundraising for us and and as an organization to be able to think and move this um, nonprofit forward. Uh, And we were able to do that. So my goal was to have at at least 50% women and 50% people of color with at least um, 50% first generation. And we methodically—and the biggest thing I'd say is for the board members who had spent a long time in this organization, their willingness as white philanthropists to step back and say I'm still going to be involved, but I'm going to step off the board so I can make a space for this progress was one of those great uh, opportunities that I've seen happen, uh, and we are significantly stronger because of it. And and they're all still involved. Mm -hmm.
1: The other question that I'm going to ask is around um, corporate folks on nonprofit boards that sometimes they, they connect to the mission, but sometimes have a trouble understanding the sector. Have you experienced that, or do you have any advice for folks that are in corporate seats that are on nonprofit boards in terms of the framing of how they should look at the work?
2: Yeah, I, again, I think the, the first thing is having to understand that, you know, when you come from a corporate perspective and you join a nonprofit board, one of the first things it, 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 it may not realize it at first, but you don't have the same resources that you do in a corporation. So as a, you're like, well, why don't you just get this done? And you're like, well, because I have four people, not 400 like you have, right? So f- when, you're, when, you're, when you've sat in a corporate role and now you're sitting on a nonprofit board, understanding those sort of dynamics, I think is an important aspect of it. Um, understanding the difference between, again, it depends on the nonprofit, you being the operator, you know, you live your corporate life running a business, now, if you're serving on your first nonprofit board, you're not running that nonprofit, uh, and for uh, and that's even when you're even with the work that NACD does around for-profit boards, helping cor- you know business people or professionals who are now serving on their first public company board to understand they're not there to run the company is very uh, mm-hmm. challenging for some people and. Those are two of the things. So you typically find, you know, new corporate directors will sort of be impatient. They love the mission, but why can't we get more done? And you know, the good answer is, well, help me raise more money so we can hire more people and then we can get more done. Uh, but um, that, that's, I think, some of the, the typical dynamics. Because people usually join because they either have a passion for it, or, which I don't like as much, they're assigned because they have a, they're a big funder, and so I'm. I have all these conversations with my boards of, yes, they're a big funder, but that doesn't mean they should simply have a seat on the board. I want someone on the board who's actually committed to this mission, um, not just there for a leadership learning experience, which is very important, but find a, find a board for them that they're actually passionate about, and they can have that leadership learning experience. Mm-hmm.
1: I've sat on on so many boards, and at some point there's someone from the corporate space that'll say- why do we have so many grants? Can't we just have one? Can't we just get one and do the work? or Like basically, right? Like, and I'm like, um, <laughs> let me talk to you a little bit more about the sector and how this works, right? Because yes, it would be easier, I think we all agree, but that's not how it necessarily works. Are there any other things that you want them to know about the, the work that you're doing that I haven't sort of addressed?
3: Um, yeah, you know, I'd like to just go back to the KPI conversation because, um, I want to say that I didn't abandon the idea that we could, um, and should have KPIs. I actually decided that, um, we would have KPIs, but that they would be ones that we defined. And so I just wanted to share like two with you, um, because, uh, one of them comes out of this experience that one of... Uh, the leaders of our organization um, talks about, which is after spending that six months uh, co-designing our metrics with us, he says, um, in a quote, he says, I now have unreasonable confidence. When I sit down and talk to a funder, I think, what, what is it like when I'm in the room at the New Commonwealth Fund? How empowered do I feel? I will no longer sit in a room with any other funder and twist myself up to be what they ask me to be. I feel like I have unreasonable confidence. And so we decided to set a KPI against unreasonable confidence. Um, and, um, you know, another um, KPI that we have is influence, right? Which is, yeah, $100 million uh, in Massachusetts, frankly anywhere, is, is probably not going to be enough to level the playing field for the uh, ridiculous amount of disinvestment that has taken place for black and brown nonprofit leaders. But if we can influence other foundations to think about just a little bit more of their corpus going towards a very targeted group of organizations, like maybe not 5% anymore, but maybe 10%, like what would happen if you were just a little bit more generous and you just upped that to, you know, 10, take that extra five and just target black and brown led nonprofits for 10 years, we could have a lot of help in the work that we're, we're doing. That influence would actually make a huge difference, because we have a very wealthy commonwealth. And that's actually starting to happen. United Way just shifted their entire strategy. Um, United Way of, of Merrimack Valley, their entire strategy, and Bob Giannino, who's the CEO, named that uh, he was heavily influenced by the New Commonwealth Fund in doing so, um, and that to me is like is the work. Um, and so I just wanted to share those two things. Yeah,
1: that was really helpful. Thank you for that. Okay, questions. I know you have them.
0: Are there any tax policies that you would um, that you would promote or that that you um, encourage in in the in the
2: Commonwealth? It's not—we so, haven't gone down that path uh, at this point. Uh, so that is a really interesting idea. Um, trying the, So the, this idea of how do we bring in government uh, together in this work is, I think, even um, another aspect of this. I mean, we were excited—we uh, m- m- were—the the first time that we've gotten appropriation from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts for a million dollars towards our fund, and that was sort of our first foray into trying to connect closer with governments, but, you know, the tax aspect of it is interesting.
3: We do have in Massachusetts something called Pilot, um, which is um, something in lieu of— taxes. (laughs) taxes. <laughs> I can't remember what the P is for, but it, it applies to cultural institutions, educational institutions, and um, health uh, institutions, which is what we, where a lot of our wealth is, so hospitals, colleges, um, and uh, art institutions, and there's been um, it's quite a, a headstrong sort of tussle um, over the last probably decade. Um, it was instituted by two mayors, three mayors ago. And has yet to be really fulfilled. I think if if there were anything that we would ever probably um, think about trying to support in a in a partnership manner, and I think that's probably where we would go. And in many ways, um, we do have partnerships that have emanated from that that have been financial. We we've received um, 2.5 million from Mass General Brigham and increasingly from other hospitals and. We just need Harvard to cough it up now.
1: (laughs) Any Harvard alum?
0: (laughs) Um, So, Makiba and Quincy, thank you both for being here. I think that I heard you say that you've been able to raise 40 and distribute 11. Can you share with us—and I actually have multiple questions, so bear with me—but could you share with us the average grant um, that you've been able to allocate and the number of recipients of those grants?
3: Yes. So we have um, made about 350 individual grants since the inception um, to about 150 organizations, so many of them have received more than one. Um, The first round of grants were all in the average range of 50,000, that's when the founders pushed that out with a few at 100. The second round of grants were, all, again, pretty much around 50000 um, The third round we instituted were piloting a new stra- some new strategies. Um, really intentionally, um, one is because this fund was started to be responsive, which is why the founders got that money out the door right away. And so we created um, a quarterly disbursement of small dollars that I have discretion to release: 2,500, 5,000, up to 10,000, um, and that is for urgent need um, and you know very simple, low threshold of, of request. It does not preclude you from applying for our next round of grants that is once a year um, that will average $50,000. We do that over two years, so 25 and 25. It's not significant in terms of the investment, but the intention there is to say we want you to be able to count on this check for two years in a row. So as we grow, as we bring in more dollars, we would hope that that check is. $50,000 Fifty thousand for two years, so a hundred thousand dollar commitment from us, and then we have, which we're talking about later today, um, six um, investments that are one time, that are about a hundred thousand. That are for um, we have found that we have organizations that are much more sort of mature, um, and but they're moving into capital campaigns or they're moving into like initiatives where they need an influx. And again, we're not talking about you know a million dollar influx. We're not there. Um, and I should say 40 million in in gifts and pledges, which is why we're not pushing out more dollars. Um, So we're actually at 10% of our cash that goes out the door right now. Um, And so there's about six of those that happen every year. Um, And so that's the way that our dollars have gone out so far.
0: Excellent, so in the spirit of trying to be bold, especially in this space and certainly appreciate in terms of what was the impetus for the fund and the work being started, There's a question that I'm going to get to, so bear with me, that's built off of some of the data that was shared from the Minnesota Council of Nonprofit, specifically in this market when we think about the 10,000-plus institutions that exist, that doesn't even equal a quarter of the revenue that one of our leading Fortune 500 corporations drive as an individual entity and not as an entire sector. So Target in 2023 driving over 106 billion, and we as a sector with over 10,000 entities only scratching the surface at 26. So this is the basis for this. What I would ask is, as, which is really encouraging, the approach that you're taking to looking at different ways and methods to release the funds, to also then understand that this is the reality of what the sector is currently, but where the sector potentially has an opportunity to go is toward the structural solvency of institutions. And really, I love the, the distinction you made between is it about a trusting or a respect thing? I often think it's an honesty thing. Can we ever get to the point where a fund like yours would consider funding deeply deeply the structural integrity to move the work so that we see shifts in the actual impact of the work in particular areas of focus. That could be housing, equitable development, holistic safety, etc. And not because that would need to be the entirety of the portfolio, but as a reflection of trying to actually shift how we think about what constitutes success within the nonprofit sector as a whole. Great. Uh, yeah. So. <laughs>
3: So, I, yeah. so, yes, and I would say we don't have enough money right now to, I think, successfully take on a, se- a structural seismic shift in any one of those areas by ourselves. And, and so when we get there, you know, I think that's definitely the, a place. But I don't think it's just about money is what I want to get to. I actually think that um, the place where we, we are playing and where we, we can have value add right now and maybe for the long run is, I um, am, am finding more and more that our leaders of color are not just suffering from a lack of financial um, investment, but a lack of, um, for lack of a better word, capability uh, investment. What I mean by that is there is no one-on-one nonprofit management that is offered to us. And a big part of that is coming from boards, leadership, board leadership. And white-led organizations tend to have been able to put together structural boards where they will get the informal teachings of like, what does it mean to have compliance? How do you make sure that you're filing your 990s every year? how do you make sure that you—I have leaders that have received grant dollars from major foundations in, in Boston, and when we go to give them a grant and we've checked, they haven't filed with the Secretary of State for three years. They're at the risk of losing their status, their charitable status. And you have to wonder, why is it that those, those major foundations didn't check them and say, you, you know, you there's something that you need to do here, but I pick up the phone and call and say, what, why did you miss this? And, and they say, I, I had no idea I was supposed to be doing that. And I'm finding that more and more that our leaders of color just are not, they do not have the same level of support um, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of um, all of the other pieces that need to be in place. And so part of this is about also like loving on them and truth-telling and making sure that we bring the um, so the, the the hugs, if you would, um, but also like the concrete other supports that are needed. How do you read a, a PL? and l You know, don't fake it till you make it, like ask for help. How do you make sure that you have pro bono, uh, you know, attorney hours on, on deck? Those are the things that we actually can bring and we are bringing, um, and I think that, that that for structural systemic change is gonna be just as necessary as like dumping millions of dollars into organizations and into issue areas.
1: And there's board members that need that training that serve on those boards. Because I've been there, and they're like, "Why are you over in food?" And I'm like, "Um, (laughs) "You know, the budget is balanced, (laughs) Um, and so just being able to provide sort of the technical support and being able to hire staff that have the expertise. Because I do think that that's one of the issues: is that people of color come in and they're afraid to fail, so they're they're, so the freedom to say you need help doesn't exist in the same way, and um, being able to navigate. The indirect expenses can be very challenging.
3: Hi, um, this is for Makiba. I, I had written down really quickly, you talked about um, the work you did to come up with definitions of systemic racism when you hired those folks to come in and, and have those conversations. And I just wrote it down quickly. The empowered communities shared narrative transparency and accountability. I'm curious if, if more of that, if like the deeper content there is available to the broader yes, community, yes. or if that's just inside for your, okay. No, no, no. Um, actually, I don't know what that QR code goes to, but I'm hoping it's our, our website. And if it is, <laughs> if it is, and you go to our website, and you go to the impact tab, and you scroll down, there are two things that you can t- check out. One is a video, it's a mini documentary of the making of that process. It's a light touch, but it'll give you some insight into what the experience was for those leaders. And then above that is a website that we created called disruptingracism.org that you can also just get to on your phones right now. And we created, um, it ended up turning into a, a deck of cards. We have hard copy cards also, but there's a virtual one that you can explore. Um, and I would do it on a desktop. Um, if you do it and you scroll down, it's interactive, so um, you scroll down, you can move the cards, you can flip them, the definitions are on the other side, and then you can use a tool below that to answer questions, give yourself sort of a scoring tool, and then it populates a heat map below that that gives you a visualization of where your organization is depending on like, where, how you answered those questions. We would love for you to test it and then send me an email and tell me what you think, and if it's not working and broken, tell me. We wanna make it work.
4: My question is for Dr. McCreary, and first, thank you for this wonderful conversation. Can you say more about um, your impressive fundraising and how you divide the responsibilities between the board, yourself, and your staff, and what you found (laughs) that is most effective?
3: So our impressive fundraising really is grounded in my impressive founders Um, to start, really. I mean, who walks into a a fund with $20 million of gifts and pledges to start? Like, that's incredible. And then I would say that I don't really have an answer for you for the second half because I literally just hired. uh, another fundraiser to join me. So it's really been me and the um, board members. And so I guess my short answer would be like, as a a CEO, using your board, literally like Quincy has to go and have lunch with me. (laughs) And um, we come up with strategy and we have to re-engage and we have to, you know, like they they work with me um, when I need them or they set me up, you know, for success. And it's all hands on deck. We have a very, very active text trail that gets used often. With, I'm really serious with, with a lot of strategy around like who, who spoke to who last week, and who's having dinner with who tomorrow.
2: But, but I think that hire that we just made was an understanding that if we were going to get to 100 million, we needed more resources <laughs> around it. It just, just couldn't be the board and our connections, and you know, how do we really continue to take it to the next level?
4: So my question is um, sort of two parts. Um, One is really what advice do you have for board members here who are serving on what might be traditionally mainstream organizations that have an intent of achieving racial justice, racial equity, because I think your example illustrates the importance of whether it's intermediaries or community uh, frontline organizations who are not receiving enough resources and are often recreating uh, themselves into sort of the traditional structures of nonprofits and I think that as you have you know shown that um, it's pretty hard to start on the ground and then to expect, To get to the millions if you don't already have those relationships. But we often tell community uh, members that if you want access to those dollars, you got to recreate yourselves into these structures. And so so my question is really two parts. One is, um, what advice do you have for those frontline groups? when they are creating these structures and where can we be more um, bold and creative in terms of how to structure our governance differently than to kind of repeat the the traditional nonprofit structures. There's a requirement in some of that because of the law, but I'm curious, uh, given your breadth of who you have supported, if you have any thoughts about what can be different. And then on the flip side of that is for the many board members who might be here who are serving on mainstream institutions that have the intent of You know, supporting, investing, redistributing resources that meet those racial equity, racial justice goals. What advice do you have for them? Because I hear a lot about the struggles within uh, boards, whether they be foundations or nonprofits, for having their board stay committed on those goals and what that process looks like. Uh, Absent being at an organization like yours where you don't have to walk in and explain A lot of things other boards have to Do that so what advice do you have for Those nonprofit boards
1: First to be clear look I'm going to Jump in because what because I think that sometimes People think they're doing racial equity work But if you ask either other people On the board or people in community They would have a different opinion Mm. And so I think just being really clear That that's what you're doing that's not just what you Say you're doing right Um, So anyway
2: no I think being Very clear and, and if You say you're going to do it you have to measure it, uh, and I think that's this idea of like again. I'll use my own foundation. Now we we run a report. We can tell you every organization that we've supported, what the racial makeup is of the leaders of that organization, which obviously which demographic or which what's what's the racial makeup of the organization? What's the primary and secondary? Constituents of who they're serving, uh, and so we just created greater transparency on our own giving. Now, this is this is my bank foundation, not NCF. We created greater transparency to make sure that we were accomplishing the mission that we said we wanted to accomplish. And I think that's one aspect. Uh, if you're sitting on particularly a foundation who wants to make the change, no, before we started this, no one measured what percentage of your dollars went to black and brown led nonprofits. Nobody measured it. Now it's being measured at a lot of foundations, which is driving that change. Um, but I also think again, if you're sitting on a board of an organization that's supposed to be doing work in this space, you have whatever that work is, how are you um, determining the time you spend in this, the impact that you have in it, and just creating greater transparency? But I think you have to get alignment with- the board and the executive director management, et cetera, that this is the real work that we're doing, and then just hold yourself accountable to it.
3: I would um, encourage um, three things. One, to the second question, do the work of starting with shared definitions. The second thing is, don't try to come to those shared definitions yourselves. Bring in somebody who's actually capable of getting you there, because, you know, there are folks who are really good at that and who are not afraid to talk about racial equity. And if you're not already there, then you probably have some hesitation about, you know, having a tough conversation or that even just the language or the implications and maybe even some like, you know, feelings of guilt around what you, know, what you haven't done yet, and that, that's just not useful, um, doesn't help you move forward. And then I think um, the final thing is, you know, where you write your check, like the, how much money you invest, where you over-index actually is a, the, the best signal of where your values are from my perspective. And so if that's what you're going to do as a board, then I think you also have to have a shared commitment to really moving your resources disproportionately to that work. So, um, the quick answer is, and we've just been in this like for the past few days we're we're, we're learning, so I would say we are um, all, all the time working towards that. we're staying really honest about this this um, dynamic between um, accountability, our accountability to the organization and to the leader, but also theirs to us, because there has to be some reciprocity. Um, we are, which means we're not sacrificing the content of the, the actual proposal, um, but we are being willing to write 90% of it um, in non-traditional ways and to create it um, in partnership and in collaboration. So that could be, as you can imagine, so many different modalities. Mm-hmm. Thank
1: you for this wonderful conversation, Dr. McKeeba, Quincy. Uh, thank you to... NACD Minnesota chapter for putting this conversation on and this, this governance lab. Thank you to our sponsors for making it possible. And thank you so much. This episode of Conversation with Shonda was supported by the Black Collective Foundation. The Black Collective Foundation is a philanthropic movement advancing the genius of Black-led change. It is Minnesota's first Black community foundation working to create a thriving ecosystem of Black-led change. Together, we are advancing the genius of Black-led change and building a community where all Black people are holistically well and living in dignity and prosperity. To learn more about the Black Collective Foundation, go to minnesotablackcollectivefoundation.org.